Genesis chapter 13, verse 5 through 18. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land, well, dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can be also numbered, be also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When last we gathered to consider God's word in the book of Genesis, we first observe a man whom the Holy Spirit was calling to repentance. Abram was back in Canaan. Abram was back at the altar that he had previously set up. Even after he lied, betrayed his wife, and did not display absolute trust in God, he was there at the altar fellowshipping with God. He has, as it were, repented before God. We learn that repentance is one of the primary evidences of true and genuine faith. Repentance, brothers and sisters, not perfection, is a mark of true saving faith. Repentance is so important that if we have not repented, then we cannot be saved. Repentance is a sign that you have been given new spiritual life. And if you have not repented, then you have not been given new spiritual life. Repentance is a display of the grace of God in our lives. Repentance, as we said last week, involves seeing our sin, having a uh, sorrow or shame over our sin, confessing our sin, not concealing it, but confessing our sin, hating our sin, then turning from our sin. And then when you turn from your sin, where do you turn? We learn that we turn to Christ who has covered our sin. Though as true and sure believers, we may sin, we may still wrestle against the world, the flesh and the devil. Be assured of this one remaining fact. As we said last week, there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. Now, with that said, I pray that none of us walked away from last week's sermon, believing that we have been given a license to sin. That because nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, we may therefore continue to sin. True believers would never reason that way. Amen. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what a true and sure believer would ever confess nor reason. But rather we see the grace of God given to us as Christ Jesus, not as cheap, but as costly. 
it cost the only innocent man his life. We have not been given a license to sin. But we are every day being purged, purified of sin that is remaining, that we might be presented to Christ as a pure bride. Repentance, again, involves seeing our sin, having shame or sorrow over our sin, confessing our sins, hating our sin, turning from our sin, and ultimately, finally, turning to Christ. And this is not a a, a one-time turn. This is a continually turn to Christ. Turn to Christ every single day. Be reminded that you need Christ, especially when we gather on the Lord's Day, which led us to our next point. We consider the signs or symbols in the believer's life. Abram has returned to the place where he first built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. He's come back to the place where he's offered sacrifices to the Lord and once again displays there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Abram has returned to the signs and symbols that served as visible reminders of the promises of God and of sacrificial atonement. We learn that God has also provided his church with signs and symbols that serve as visible reminders of the promises of God and of the finished work of Christ. They are namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two sacraments are foundational to to we who are the church of God, to who we are and what we do as we gather as the people of God. God works grace in his people through his word and through the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper have been given as a means of grace to God's people to remind us that Christ in his doing, in his dying and in his rising has accomplished and applied redemption to those who have been adopted as sons of God. The sacraments have been given to us, provided to us as our, for our remembrance, for our present strength and blessing, and for our future hope. If you are a believer in this place, and you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. Not for salvation, but because it is a means of grace that God provides for His people. God commands it. And there is rich benefits in baptism. If you are a believer this morning, you need to make partaking of the Lord's Supper, a regular partaking of the Lord's Supper, a regular priority in your life. We asked last week, what shall I remember when I sin? The answer, remember the promises of God and the work of Christ. Those are most, uh, those are most visibly found for us in the sacraments. We then asked, Where shall I go when I sin? Answer, go back to the place of public worship. Like Abram, who returned to Bethel, who returned to the altar, to the place of public worship, we must go back to the gathering of the saints, to the the gathering of the saints in public worship when we sin. Why? For it is in the gathering of the saints that God has promised to uniquely meet with His people to uniquely fellowship and commune with his people in a way that he does not fellowship and commune with his people throughout the rest of the week. This is a a unique gathering. This is a unique communion and fellowship with God. Don't neglect it. It is for your benefit. And if our mindset is, well, the church is really not that important to me. But Christ is important to me. We must know that our thinking is opposite of Christ. Because the church was important enough to Christ that he gave up his life for her. So for us to reason, it's not that important to me, but Christ is important to me. Christ would say, if you think that I'm important to you, then you would love my church. Because I have given my life for her. When we sin, do not avoid, do not run from, do not hide from the gathering of the saints. Go back to communion with God. Go back to the public worship of the saints with God. And now today, after that long review, with God's help, we shall consider the remaining verses of the 13th chapter with three main points. Number one, Abram living by faith. Abram living by faith. Go back to Genesis chapter 13. And verse 5, Abram living by faith. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. 
the Lord could not or the land could not sustain them while dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, the Canaanite and the Pezzarite were dwelling in the land of Canaan. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Abram and his companions have returned to Bethel. And they have settled there in the land. As the scene is unfolding, the scriptures begin to give us more insight into the life of a man that we have briefly met before. His name is Lot. Lot is the son of Haran. We are told in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 31 that Haran, his father, that he's died. And when Lot's father died, we can assume, and I think rightly assume, that Abram took Lot, his nephew, in and cared for him as his own son. We can also assume that Abram is taking on the role of father to Lot. So then Lot has traveled with Abram and followed his uncle as they have been called by God out of the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. Lot has followed Abram out of darkness even and into the light of God. We are told in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, Lot was righteous. Or that Lot was righteous by faith. For that is the only way that one can be righteous. Amen. Therefore, at some point, the faith of Abram, the faith that Abram had in Christ became the faith that, that Lot had in Christ. This will become uh, interesting and, and even almost conflicting at times when we see the life of Lot progress in this narrative. Lot has traveled with his uncle to the promised land. He's experienced the pressure of the severe famine. He was at Lot's side when they entered Egypt, and he was also at Lot's side when they narrowly escaped Egypt with their lives. Lot also, because of Abram, has acquired great wealth. He's a rich man. It is possible that much of the wealth of Abram was acquired while he was in Egypt. And now Lot, because of his association with Abram, he has his own flock. He has his own herdsmen. He is uh, accumulating his own wealth. Lot is setting up his own tents. He is setting up his own dwelling places. Lot is, is becoming uh, a great nation in and of himself, it appears. He's becoming established according to worldly standards. And let me just say uh, in passing, there is nothing wrong with being financially stable. Nothing sinful about having money. Being wealthy is not a sin. What you do with your wealth could be sinful, but, but being wealthy is not a sin. The wealth that Abram and Lot have acquired is creating a problem, though. It's creating a conflict in the land. Verse 6, the land could not sustain them. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and of Lot's livestock. The strife was not necessarily between Lot and Abram, but they were drawn into this strife. They were drawn into this conflict because of their herdsmen. Now think about this. God has given all of the land to Abram. And yet the strife, the conflict is, there's not enough land for us both. Wherever they are, the land could not sustain them both. Interesting. Though they were wealthy, though they had plenty, and though all of the land had been given to Abram, the conflict has arisen because there's just not enough for the both of us. It would appear that the strife was over the, the grazing of flocks. Perhaps one flock was grazing where there was already another flock grazing. So tell your flock to get out of here. You tell your flock to get out of here. And so there is a, a conflict between the two herdsmen. The prosperity of Abram and even the prosperity of Lot is now threatening 
the unity of the family. How many of us would like to have that kind of problem? Prosperity is threatening our unity. Now remember, this is Abram who has built an altar to the Lord. He has publicly declared Yahweh is the one true and living God. He's distinguished himself from the other nations and from their pagan deities as one who is devoted to the commands of God. Now, why is this important? An important point to make. Important point to make. Verse seven, because Moses points out the Canaanites and the Perizzites or Perizzites were living or dwelling in the land. Moses uh, makes note of this that there is a conflict, and it may seem weird. There's a conflict between these two herdsmen. They are the ones who are calling on the name of the Lord. And yet there is kind of a side note. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are living in the land. Doesn't that seem kind of awkward? Well, we asked last week, is there anything in Scripture that is unintentional? No. So then we we must at least try to figure out what's the purpose of at least naming that these two other nations are living there. Moses uh, makes note of this. So. There could be a few reasons. The presence of the other nations was maybe to tell us that they were still living in the land. That although the land had been given to Moses, they had not yet overtaken the land and exiled or removed all the other nations from the land. That could be a reason. John Gill has an interesting note. He says, in witnessing the strife of these sojourners who have come into their land, the Canaanites and the the Perizzites are, are witnessing this conflict. They may have said together, now let's attack them. They're fighting each other. Now's the time to attack them. Let's remove these pilgrims from our lands now that they're fighting one another. But I think there's a a deeper, I think, spiritual uh, aspect to mention or or that is important for us to mention in seeing the, the quarreling between these two people of God And the nations that are watching. It was a reminder to Israel. Of who they were meant to be to the other nations. And it was also a reminder to the church today. Of who we are to be to the nations. What do we mean? We mean that the world is watching us. And the world, the the nation of Israel was never to be a nation that was uh, on its own, on an island by itself, thumbing its noses at the other nations and saying, we have God and you don't. They were rather to be a light to the nations. They were to be a witness to the nations. And their conflict, their arguing, their bickering with one another was not a good witness to the other nations. Just like our conflicts, our bickering with one another is not a good witness to To the world, the unbelieving world, who was looking at the church and saying, show us what you have. We are to be light in this world. We are to be salt in this world. Brothers and sisters, we must never let our witness for Christ be marred by conflicts in the church. I recently said uh, that most of our conflicts arise that arise are simply because we we refuse to obey God's word. We refuse, we fail to, to obey God in forgiving one another. We refuse or fail to obey God in repenting to one another and to God. We refuse and fail to obey God in loving one another, being teachable, being humble, being long-suffering, and on and on and on. And we say, the church has hurt me. A lot of times we have only hurt ourselves simply by not obeying what God has commanded. Let us never be the cause of divisions among the brethren simply because we will not obey what God has commanded. Abram recognizes this strife. Now, Abram is, is seeing there is strife. And rather than taking a side, Abram comes to resolve the strife. Strife that could potentially bring reproach upon the gospel, the people of God, and his family. He says in verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Brothers and sisters, pause now just for a moment, okay? In Abram's response, we are finding a man who is growing in faith. Right? 
Abram's faith is, is heading in an upward motion, an upward direction. He is ascending. He is, he is drawing closer to God and to the promises of God. He's no longer going down, down, and down. He's progressing up and up and up. We see a man who is now living by faith and not by sight. In order to resolve this conflict, Abram first appeals to Lot as his brother. You see that? Let there be no strife between you and me. My herdsman or your herdsman? Why? Because you're my nephew, Lot. No. Because you are my brother, Lot. Lot was Abram's nephew. And yet, Abram calls Lot his brother. Abram could have very simply applied to his status as the the elder statesman. The patriarch of the family. God spoke to me, not you. And yet... Abram does not appeal to this. He does not tell Lot to fall in line. He does not tell Lot, hey, go graze somewhere else. Instead, Lot treats, or Abram treats Lot, Lot not as his little nephew, but as his equal brother in Christ, with equal status, as a fellow heir with Christ. Lot and Abram are not just children of humanity. But they are children who have been adopted by God, by faith. Lot is therefore first, not his nephew, but his brother in Christ. Because of this, this fact, it is of the utmost importance that we have been, who have been united to Christ, maintain and uphold the unity that has been established by Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are bound to one another. We are brothers. We together are the people of God who has been, who have been adopted as the children of God. We must always be eager to resolve conflicts. Be the first one to confess our wrongdoings to our brothers. Be the first one to, to, to be a peacemaker. Christ says it in Matthew chapter five that the peacemakers, they are called sons of God. We must not allow conflict to grow. To fester, to become unaddressed. Don't you hate that? When there is conflict, but it's not addressed. And we just go on like nothing ever happened. Not so. Not healthy. Don't let things grow and fester to, to the point where they become unrepairable, unresolvable. We must not be prideful. We must not be arrogant. We must not be a haughty people who will not repent or even acknowledge of any, uh, uh, any of our wrongdoings. We must not be a people who make excuses for our offenses. Brothers and sisters, we must be the people, a people of the book. We must be people of God's word. Abram was eager to make peace. And, and how do you make peace with one another? You don't make peace by saying, now here's everything you did. Admit it and then we can move on. No, you, you make peace by putting the interest of the other person before your own. Here's everything I've done. And I am so sorry. And not wait now, now it's your turn. What do you want to say? Even if it doesn't come out. You're putting that person's interests before your own. What does Abram say to Lot? Is not the whole land before you. God has given us this land, given me this land. So go. Separate from me. If you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abram had every right as the patriarch, as the elder statement to, to, statesman to command Lot, fall in line, my land, get in where you fit in. But Abram's approach was one of peace. Is not the whole land before you. Look, all of this, all of this has been given to, to me by God. There's no reason for conflict. And then Abram makes a humble offer. Now, now if you can imagine this, Abram is taking Lot to, to the very heights to survey all of the land. And he's saying to, to, to Lot, look at the land. Get that in your, if you can imagine that. Look at the land, Lot. You can imagine that there is conflict. Abram meets with Lot. They go up to the high mountain because Abram wants to have a, a talk with his nephew, his brother. 
and says, look, look. If you can imagine them surveying the land, this has all been given. And then Abram says to Lot, choose. Where do you want to go? It's all before you. Wherever you would like to go, you may go. I, I think of uh, Miyagi when he says to Daniel's son, going into the, the car lot, choose, right? Not that, 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 choose, right? Remember that? Pick which one you want. The land has been promised to Abram. To Abram. And now Abram is laying down certain rights that have been given to him. Why? So that he might establish peace between Lot and himself. Hopefully that's starting to sound typological. What is Abram doing? He's living by faith. His eyes are not on what is seen. His eyes are, 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 are have been graciously reoriented on Christ who was unseen, but seen. I think about this just for a moment. I just thought about this. Abram is telling Lot to look. But in a moment, God is going to tell Abram to look. There's an upward motion of this man's faith. This man who, who ran for the land. When it, when it, uh, when it was struck by severe famine, is now telling his nephew Lot, look at the land. It's all ours. And saying, pick. God will provide. You pick. God will take care of me wherever you want to go. Abram's not concerned with laying up treasures on earth. He's concerned about laying up treasure in heaven. He's not looking to an earthly city. He's looking forward. Keep that in mind. He's looking forward to the heavenly city whose builder and designer is God. He's walking before God. How? With open hands. With open hands. What does that mean? He is content with having more or less as God wills. It's all God's. He is, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, learning how to live with humble means and learning also how to live in prosperity. Uh, you may know it as he's learning how to abound and he's learning how to be abased. This land is his. It's his. But we only truly possess a thing when we are willing to be detached from it. When we have no anxieties about it. When we walk before God with an open hand saying, all that I have is not mine, it is God's. God owns all that I have. So then when having more or having less, either way, it will not affect my true treasure, which is in heaven, namely Christ. Take it all. This is not my treasure. God has given it to me, but my treasure is not in land. I'm looking forward to something better, namely Christ. He's not worried about his life, what he shall eat or what he shall drink. Why? Because Christ says that the pagans worry about those things. He seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all of those things will be provided for him. What's he doing? He's living by faith. Abram does not ask Lot to humble himself. But Abram is the one who humbles himself. Why? To make peace. He is laying down all of his rights for the sake of his brother. Very subtly, Abram is a type of Christ. Christ, who in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, uh, uh, who Paul says in Philippians 2, 6, says, existed in the form of God, who did not equ- who did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but did what? Emptied himself or humbled himself taking on the very form of a servant. Did he need to do this? No. We could have rotted in our sin. We could have been eternally separated from God. That the, the wrath of God could have eternally been upon sinful man for our sin. And yet, God sent His Son, who became incarnate in Christ Jesus, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Why? So that He might make peace With us and God. Brothers and sisters. This emptying humility that Abram 
is exemplifying, is pointing us to a greater emptying humility found in Christ. The Son of God who would become incarnate in Christ. He obeyed the commands of Christ. He would lay down his life on behalf of sinners. He would rise from the dead and in his rising make peace between God and man. Brothers and sisters, let us walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us that we might have peace with God. We are meant to see in this narrative, not that we are Abram. Let me just pause for a second. I hope that in the times that we've been talking about Abram, you've not walked away saying, hey, I'm Abram. You are not Abram. Let me also say, I hope that you've not walked away from these these, uh, teachings saying, Abram is a great hero. Because Abram is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. Abram is constantly showing that he is flawed, that he is not a hero, that God is making this man into someone, something that will ultimately point us to the man, the prototypical man of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is more about Christ than it is about Abram. We are to live by faith like Abram. But Abram is pointing us ultimately to the man of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it is on him that we fix our eyes. Secondly. Lot. Living by sight. Abram living by faith. Secondly, Lot living by sight. Chapter 13 and verse 10. (coughs) Excuse me. Lot lifted up his eyes. And saw all the valley of the Jordan. That it was well watered everywhere. And then kind of a comma, parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Watered everywhere like what? Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. We've seen this humble deferring of Abram, who puts the needs of his nephew before his own needs. And now we are meant to take notice a contrast of the antithesis of Abram, Lot. He is making the the opposite choice of Lot. Up until this point, Lot has mostly been in the background. And now he is given the stage, right? He's been a supporting cast member up until this point. And now Lot is given front and center the spotlight. Lot, your father has died and Abram has taken you to be his own son. Lot, you have left paganism with your uncle and you have professed his faith to be your own faith. Lot, you were present with Abram when he sinned, not trusting in the promises of God, when he repented, turning back to God and to the public place of worship or to the place of public worship. And now there is a dispute with the potential to cause a great divide in the family. And Lot, what will you now do? The stage is yours. Spotlight is on you. What will you do? Lot lifted up his eyes. Now, if you can imagine, they are standing, surveying the land. Abram is seeing what Lot is seeing. If you can picture that in your mind. Lot is not looking to something that Abram is not seeing also. As a matter of fact, Abram may have looked in the same direction as Lot and thought, if it were my choice, I know where I would go. Or maybe seeing eyes, the eyes of Lot, as Lot is surveying the land and seeing those Maybe surveying eyes widening as he sees a well-watered land. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, well-watered. Like the land, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Now, as we see Lot lifting up his eyes, we were giving more, given more insight Into the heart and mind of Lot. Listen to this. We have no words spoken by Lot thus far. Not a word that we have has been recorded by Lot. Not a word coming out of his lips. But yet we are giving a a, a large window into his soul. 
what we find in Lot's decision were the beginnings of a true believer's downward slide. He is a true believer. Uh, we talked about this already. Second Peter chapter two and verse seven. He is called righteous Lot, who, whose soul is later vexed. But but there is a a righteous man who is now downward sliding into sin, away from God, away from public worship, and away from the promises of God. Lot is choosing to separate himself from Abram. Do you know that Lot could have easily said to his uncle, I'm going to stay with you. He could have easily said to Abram what Ruth said to Naomi when she was commanded to depart from her. Go away from me now. Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth was blessed because of her decision not to leave Naomi. Lot could have done the same. But Lot did not act in this righteous way. He did not honor the one who had been like a father to him, but used this moment to take advantage of the one who had been a father to him and to gain the best of the land. Lot should have given preference to his his uncle Abram. He should have deferred to his uncle, but it's the other way around. The patriarch is deferring to the younger. Lot puts his own interests ahead of Abram and even ahead of the promises of God. Abram has been called by God and yet there, there is, there is, there does not seem to be a man who was seeking out wisdom from God, asking wisdom from his uncle. Uh, Abram, what do you think I should do? Instead, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Lot has lifted up his eyes and they have become fixated on what appears to be the most prosperous of the land. He looks out to the land that that appears to be well watered, flourishing, where he could potentially increase his wealth. And Lot is unaware that the land that he has chosen will later be the focus of the fires of God's judgment. We will read that the land is, we read that the land is beautiful at this time. But soon and very soon, it will be a land that is destroyed by God in fire. It is the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is looking to the land. And the land that he is choosing is in close proximity to the land that will be judged by God. It looked beautiful. But it will soon come under the wrath of God. The land that Lot was choosing will continually be used and referenced in Scripture To refer to sin and wickedness. The choice to live in close proximity was not one of ignorance. Uh, Lot knew where he was going. We we cannot say that Lot was drawn by Sodom or drawn by Gomorrah. that, that, That he wanted to live near the sinful people. But he was more so drawn by the well watered land. He was more so drawn by what he thought could potentially lead him to riches. Not so much influenced or drawn by Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's downward spiral began when he did not defer to his uncle. And then the speed of that downward spiral begins to pick up when he starts to live by sight and not by faith. And Moses mentions something intentionally, doesn't he? He says, Lot lifted up his eyes. I keep saying that. And saw all of the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered. But then Moses says something very interesting. Like what? What 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 was he likening that land to? The garden of the Lord. The garden of Eden. The phrase lifting up the eyes and, and the sight that brought delight to the eyes is alluding to another who was moved by what she saw. It is Eve. Just as Eve was drawn by what she saw, so Lot is now being drawn by what he sees. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, and she ate from its fruit in spite of the fact that it was forbidden by God. In the same way that the woman Eve chose that which was a delight to the eyes 
and in opposition to God's command. So we find Lot being moved by that which most pleased his eyes and not that which most pleased God. What would have most pleased God? Staying where you are. Stay where you are. God is there. God's presence is there. Worship is there. The promises of God are there. That is what most pleased God. But Abram was moved more so by what most pleased his eyes, his flesh. Brothers and sisters, we are told that Sodom and Gomorrah were close to the area that Lot was choosing. And it's not no mute. It's not a mute point. It's, it's an intentional point. Lot is choosing that which is sinful, close to that which is sinful. He's leaving Bethel, the house of God, for a place that will be later judged by God for its wickedness. It's complicating. It, it, it's the, the very complicated beginning of a man that will eventually not, listen to this, not just live close to Sodom, but will eventually be living in Sodom. As a judge in Sodom, he will be standing at the gates and we will see that he will narrowly escape his life before the judgment of God later. This decision of Lot will eventually cost the lives of his daughters, two of his daughters, husbands of his two of, of his daughters, their husbands. It will also cost his wife her life. And he will narrowly escape with his own life. Because he was drawn by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Brothers and sisters, the fact that Lot will be living near a city that has the potential to derail his spiritual life does not deter Lot's choice. Think about that. He was not put off by the kind of place that Sodom was. He, he does not think that the sinfulness of Sodom is serious enough to keep him from living near it. It's not that bad. It's not going to affect me. We can assume that he reasoned he could cope with the sinfulness of Sodom. That the city would have no influence on him. After all, again, Peter declares he was a righteous man. He was a believer. This is the man who I've walked with Abram. Literally, he's heard of the promises of God. He's been with Abram and saw the triumphs and failures and then the triumphs. We can assume that he has worshipped God along with Abram at the altar. We can assume that, that he has also offered sacrifices to God. And now he is voluntarily moving into great spiritual danger. What's happened to his faith? His eyes have happened to his faith. His eyes have been entranced by the choice he wants, by, by that which most gratifies his flesh. He's been given a choice and his eyes have become mesmerized by watery green. Brothers and sisters, what instruction are we given by Lot's choice? Well, let's ask this. Was the land that Lot chose Sinful. The land in itself. Was there something sinful about the land? No. The land itself was not sinful. The sin of Lot was that he was removing himself from Abram. And in doing so, underestimating the kind of negative impact this move, this move, this decision would have on his spiritual life. As far as we can tell, there was no pause in Abram's life that he might ask God for direction. As far as we can tell. Lot saw the land and his eyes were overtook. His eyes overtook every spiritual inclination that he might have otherwise had. Brothers and sisters, what about us? When we are making decisions, when we are making moves, if you will, what things do you consider before you make decisions in your lives? Let me ask it this way. What are the chief concerns before you make a decision? Don't we often make lists of pros and cons? Well, here are the pros. Higher pay, better education, 
more opportunities for advancement, meeting new people and feeling personally more satisfied in my life because of maybe a new relationship, right? This is a variety of things. This is everything from getting a new job to dating a new person. Now, what are the cons? I'll be working long hours. I'll need to find a daycare, maybe even an after-school program. My spouse and I will be losing time together, but hopefully we can make it up some way. Well, I won't be able to go to the gym like I used to. And now I'm broke because dates are not cheap anymore. Dear people of God, where does the question of how will this affect my spiritual life fall in the pros and cons of your decision making? Where does that question fall? How will this affect my communion with God? How will this affect my fellowship with the saints? If I make this decision, what will, what will become of my communion with God? What would be, what will become of my communion with the saints? I say that this question must be at the top of every single believer's life when we are making decisions in our lives. Will this have a negative or positive effect on my walk with Christ and my fellowship with the saints in the local church? And if it does, then that must first and foremost be dealt with because this can't be touched. This can't be touched. The only way it can be touched is if it is enhanced to where I can spend more time with God, more time with the saints. It can't take away from this. It can only add to this. Young people, you, you, you may be sitting here today and think he's just talking to mom and dad, grandma or grandpa. It's the same for you. Why? Because you will soon be searching for jobs. You will soon be thinking about schools that you want to go to. You'll be thinking about different clubs you want to join or different teams that you want to play for. Let me ask you, young people, will you allow these things to take you away from communion with God and from fellowship with the saints? And parents, will you teach your children that communion with God and fellowship with the saints is to be priority in your children's lives? If you will, then you must display first that it is priority in your own life. I can remember at times, uh, Pastor Zay may not remember this, but my, my brother Isaiah, Pastor Zay, is 10 years younger than me. And there were times when my mother and father would be away at a prison preaching, and I would take advantage of those days as our vacation days. Because mom and dad are not here. So we're ordering a pizza and we're sleeping in. And we're going to watch wrestling. Brothers and sisters, I was not raised that way. I was raised that I should be in church, which is why when my father would get out of the prison, he would say, did you go to church today? And I would be, I would most often, most often be honest. We must not teach our children that Sunday is an extended Saturday to be used in any kind of way that we would like to be used for our own selfish wants, needs and desires. But it is the Lord's day. And it is the day when God meets with his people. And it is, it is the day when the people of God meet with one another. It is the day when we partake in the Lord's Supper. It is the day that we hear God's word and that we are afforded the means of grace that draw us further away from the world and closer to Christ. Will we neglect this day for anything else or for anything in our lives? That, that we can help. If we can help it, we should not. If there is something that falls on this day that is not a matter of our livelihood, we should not be partaking in it. If there is anything else taking place on this day that is not a matter of our health, we should not be partaking in it. This is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's And parents, practice it. Teach your children it. This is the Lord's day. But if I don't do this, I won't be able to get ahead. If I don't do this, they won't be able to advance. My dear friends, the pagans worry about those things. God will provide. Seek first his kingdom. God will open doors for you if you are faithful in making his word priority in your lives. Lot 
is moving and he is gaining a prosperous land. But the cost is that he is going to be living in the presence of sinful people of Sodom. And it will soon cost many people their lives. And the Bible says in Peter that he is also going to be vexed in his soul. He will never be content in his soul living where he is living. Sadly, we cannot avoid sinful people in this world, can we? Sadly, they will even be sprinkled among us when we gather with the saints. We cannot and should not avoid sinful people. We are to be witnesses to them. We are to preach Christ to them. But we must not believe that we are above being influenced or impacted by them. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, bad company corrupts good character. Our relationship with the world should be one of evangelism, not assimilation. We are not to become as one of them. We are to call them to the way of Christ and out of the way of sin. But we are not to join them in their sinful deeds. Beware of the choices you make and beware of the people that you surround yourself with. How will this decision make an impact on your communion and fellowship with God? How will these people influence you? Will they make you look more like Christ or less like Christ? This is for all ages. Are your friends those who are walking with Christ? Do they push you and encourage you towards Christ? Or are they drawing you further and further away? Brothers and sisters, there is a resource of strength for you. Where is it? We say, I want friends. Look around you. You have been given a family. You've been adopted by Christ to join with other saints. You say, I feel so alone. Why? You're sitting in a room full of people. I don't know them. You ever walk up to them and maybe talk to them? Don't come to this place and then leave this place without ever fellowshipping with the saints. They've been provided also for your for your strength and for your encouragement. You are not alone. You don't have to be alone. If you come to church, you have no friends. We can't always say it's because no one likes me. Have you first made yourself friendly? Have you gone out of your way to pray for people, to encourage people? Let's first start there. You don't need to be a friend with the world just so that you can have friends. Fellowship with the saints. And Lord willing, you will find that there are faithful brothers and sisters here who are not going to be maybe telling all of your business because that's what we most fear. But who are going to love you and encourage you and walk with you through this life as we are pilgrims headed toward the heavenly city. Amen. Lot made a foolish decision, living by sight and not by faith. But we must ask in closing, has Abram now lost out on the blessing of God? Because it would appear that Abram, that Abram has, has been hoodwinked. Uh, that Lot has taken the best of the land from right under the nose of Abram. Number three. And finally, God gives further revelation to the covenant. God gives further revelation to the covenant. I'm not going to read the final verses. I will read the final verses, actually. Uh, Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Response of Abram. And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw And when he saw, and what he saw lured him away. 
He's departed from Abram. And, and we can assume this was not an easy separation. Lot or Abram loved this man as his own son. Abram has walked by faith and now the one who has been like a son to him has departed. In great time of difficulty, difficulty, the Lord speaks to Abram again. God has not spoken to Abram since Abram left Ur. And now God calls Abram again, speaks to Abram again. And what does God say? Verse 13 or verse 14. Lift up your eyes and look. The place where you are. Interestingly enough, God uses the same language of lifting up one's eyes. Lot has, has lifted up his own eyes and now God has commanded Lot or Abram to lift up your eyes. Lot has lifted up his eyes and been led by the flesh. Abram has been commanded to lift up his eyes and he, be, he is being led by God's spirit. Lift up your eyes. The Lord then further reveals or unveils the promises of the covenant that he will give to Abram. Look north, south, east and west. All that you see. I give to you. And now he furthers, he further, further unveils the covenant to you and to your descendants. The Lord then takes the nation, that nation promise of chapter 12 that he had previously spoken to Abram and he expands it to, to offspring that will be so numerous that they will be as count, as uncountable as the dust of the earth. He said, before I will make you into a great nation. Now he is saying your descendants will be as uncountable as the dust of the earth. The Lord then tells Abram, take a walk. Walk the land, its length and its breadth. It's all been given to you. This further unveiling of the promise of God was a response to Abram's faith. In chapter 12, Abram doubts God, doubts the promise of God when severe famine strikes the land. And now Abram, walking by faith, says to Lot, take what you want. God will provide. And now God is saying, it's all yours. It's all yours. I will provide. You're right. It's all yours. God has revealed himself to Abram. And the land is not only for Abram now. It is for his descendants. who His descendants who will be like the dust of the ground. And later they will be like the stars in the sky. The beginnings of the covenant are found in chapter 12. And now the, the Lord further is re- revealing or unveiling the promises of this covenant. And there is still yet more to come. The land will be given to Abram's offspring. Now listen closely to this. To be enjoyed by them until today. Question mark. The land will be given to Abram's offspring, offspring to be enjoyed by them until the coming of the Messiah. Who is Christ, the Lord Jesus. And then when Christ comes, he would inaugurate a new creation. Therefore, that which God has promised in Abram is fulfilled in Christ. Well, fulfilled in in Moses and then further revealed or fulfilled in Christ. The Lord was giving this land to Abram to dwell in. Dwell in it as he pleases. Given to his offspring to dwell in that land thereafter. God was giving Abram the title to that land and to his offspring for future times. So then what what do we mean when we say that they would enjoy the land until the Messiah came? Abram would enjoy the land. His posterity would enjoy the land. And then Christ, the principal seed of Abram, would bring his seeds. Those who place their faith in Christ alone, as Abram did, he would bring them into that spiritual land, that one that is eternal and everlasting. And that would be accomplished in the consummation that we are awaiting, where the entire world will be the land of God and for the people of God. Canaan then is typological. It is typifying. It is it is uh, typological. It is pointing toward the land that God has promised for all of his people to dwell in. It is Typical of the eternal land where the entire world will be the promised land, where the entire world will be God's kingdom. When God has made all of his enemies under his feet. This land that Abram was looking forward to is the land that all who have placed their faith in Christ will one day enjoy forever. Now, 
I said before, Abram was looking forward to that city. But do you know that Jesus says that, that Abram looked forward to Jesus' day? And that he saw it and was glad. So if you can imagine, as they are standing on that plateau and they are overlooking the land, Lot is looking at the well-watered land near Sodom. And Abram was looking beyond that land to Christ. He is seeing far in the distance, not in the, in the natural, if you will, but in the spiritual. He is seeing Christ and he is glad. He is seeing beyond what can be seen. He's living by faith and not by sight. And he's seeing Christ. Brothers and sisters, we do not look to this temporal world for our joy or for our satisfaction. We look to that which is already but not yet. We look to Christ and to what he has promised to all those who place their faith in him. And what is Lot's response in closing and we're done? Lot builds an altar and worships God. What an appropriate response. In response to the promise of God, Lot or Abram worships God. And let that be our response this morning. And even this evening when we gather for the word of God and for prayer and for communion. Let our, our response be, be worship. For God is faithful to his promises. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Brothers and sisters, let us live by faith and not by sight. Let us look to Christ, for in Christ alone are we saved. Let us pray.